you know, having the opportunity to sit in a very orthodox church where people are kneeling or sitting on the ground on carpets with what appears to be no lead as they sang, as they prayed, as they read in silence a lot out at Anaphora uh, Monastery. Whether we were in Hyopolis uh, Evangelical Church, got to go Fridays is the big Sunday, sort of, if you will. Friday is the biggest service with our Sunday schools and everything, and we got to go to church uh, with our friends and uh, to sit and listen to them singing. Uh, you know, they're singing How Great Thou Art in Arabic. And to see a church absolutely full of Arabic-speaking believers who are committed in their following of Jesus, it again reminds me, we don't own God here. Can I just let all the Caucasian North Americans know that? It just, you're, 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 you understand that God is so much bigger than what we see going on here. And it was a real joy to worship with our friends and brothers and sisters in other languages and in other contexts, <clears throat> and that also we can get fairly um, thinking that our ways of worship are actually the closest to God. And uh, we experienced uh, people in deep, deep devotion in ways that many of us would feel very uncomfortable with, but were just as legitimate in the eyes of God. Uh, we heard a report from Niger that uh, people that we've been praying for, remember uh, Lisa Rourke had been working there and going out to villages for a long time and and suddenly they put up a picture of Lisa's guys. These were men who have trusted Christ over the years. And to see them now carrying, <clears throat> carrying the torch of the faith in their various regions, and that a picture of a young man who they are actually sending to uh, biblical theological training who's going to be working out in remote areas. And uh, the gospel is prevailing, where for years there was hard ground and no responsiveness Suddenly we're seeing little shoots begin to peer through the hard desert as God's Spirit is igniting people. Pray for that whole northern Africa region that God would release His Spirit, that believers would stand firm in the face of persecution, and it is definitely true there. So God bless you. Well, we're back to our series, and uh, as Amy taught last week, just a, just a big chunk there from the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3. I'm going to finish it off. It builds on that foundation, and we're going to be looking at three verses of Scripture. Um, it's a powerful little passage that actually oozes much about that comes out of Paul's prayer. Three little verses. Much of it's a prayer. And out of it, it's rich in theological underpinnings about the nature of God, about who God is, and what you know, we know about God or believe about Him. Uh, it expresses God's desire or Paul's desire for God to work in the people. It reminds him of who God and Jesus are. There are two major prayer requests in these three verses. 
If you have an NIV, you're going to see there's basically three. And I just want to say that in actuality, I think um, it obscures it a little bit in this particular passage using that particular version. And, uh, but some of your formal equivalent scriptures like the ESV, the NASB, New King James, they, they, see, they catch what is really happening there. There are two major, major uh, prayer requests in this, an insight into the practical nature of holiness, motivation for living in God's grand story. And I'm going to give time as we go through these three verses to delineate some of this. I'm going to highlight the two requests and then give us our practical application. That's where we're going. You with me? You ready? Buckle up, little buddy. <laughs> All right. So here we're going, and uh, let's trust the Lord's, uh, the word of the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Now may God our Father... Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Now he uses the word may in each of the requests. And what this is actually, it's expressing a very, very strong desire and a hope-filled wish for the Thessalonians, one for themselves and one for the Thessalonians. But may, may God do this. And he talks about God and Father. For those of us who grew up in the church, especially, you know, we spend most of our time in the Newer Testament, for example, this whole idea of God being Father is so commonplace, we don't actually feel the depth of its rich richness. There's only a few references in the Older Testament that specifically address God as Father. Two of them from Isaiah, one in Isaiah chapter 63, another one in Isaiah chapter 64, and then one sort of an allusion, alluding to it in Malachi chapter 2. Sometimes he'll be uh, referenced or they will illustrate God as a father, but to speak of God as father was very, very, very limited in the Older Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus, of course, introduces this idea in technicolor as he speaks so often about his father, about God being father to him, a deeply personal understanding of the nature of the relationship between he and God that will become true of all of his followers after him. It was then picked up by the gospel writers. In fact, the most often reference to God as father in the entire New Testament is found in the Gospel of John. But the gospel writers pick this up as well. And then Paul's writings obviously speak about God as Father. One of the most powerful and intimate aspects of God in relation to his people, unfortunately in the last 50 or 60 years, has fallen into hard times. People have grown up with often difficult relationships with their dads. Uh, maybe he's been absent, harsh, abusive, uh, not encouraging, demanding. And this, in fact, has an influence on how people perceive God as Father. Now, <clears throat> churches and pastors, because of this reality and wanting to connect with the culture, uh, retreated a little bit from this whole dynamic. And they wanted to be sensitive to the culture, and they didn't want to offend people. And so we just sort of began to back away. But thank God, there has been a move in the last you know, decade or so to re you know, reinvest in this understanding of God as Father. 
And the church has returned to this deep, wonderful truth, helping people work through their father wounds, things like celebrate recovery, soul care, steps to freedom in Christ, set free retreats. These types of things help us to face these. And then ongoing, some great Christian counselors can help you walk through that. But our perception of God often, not always, but often, can be influenced deeply by the Father's with whom we grew up. And we're correcting misperceptions. Churches are talking about it again. We acknowledge it, but we don't shy away from that. It's a deep, deep, rich image, and it's more than an image. It's a reality that when we were adopted into the family of God, now we have a loving Father who's loving and perfect, very unlike the brokenness that all of us Since Adam, every one of us are broken as fathers, as mothers. We are. But in God's grace, he takes the word of God and takes experiences and he can help actually just re-engage this wonderful and deep truth. Songs that we sing, like we sang a few weeks ago, that you're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I am loved by you. That's who I am. And it touches our soul deeply. So when he speaks about this, there's this deep, rich underpinning, this backdrop and foundation to his prayer that addresses God as Father. And then, and our Lord Jesus. And we can skim over this, especially growing up in the church. We can just skim so much. Lord isn't his name. Lord is actually a title given to him. His name is Jesus. In fact, Christ isn't his second name. Christ means the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And so when he says here, and now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus, he's uh, introducing something that's just amazing. Now, prior to the death and resurrection and ascension, a first century Jew, if they were to hear the word Lord attached, you know, what would they think of immediately? They would think of the God of the Old Testament. Adonai. In fact, even in the, Shin, in, the Shin, in the Shema, you know, the Lord our God is one from uh, Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord, Adonai, your God, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when they talked about this, they would have thought immediately about God. Now Jesus, a, or Paul, a, a first century ex-Pharisee who encountered the living Christ now takes this word when the, when the Older Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek for the very first time, that Greek copy of the entire Old Testament was called the Septuagint. You say that? Septuagint. That's the Old Testament in Greek. And when they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, the word that they used For God, Adonai, they chose, in Greek, kurios, Lord. Now, this is really important to understand because Jesus is being equated in the very early writings, and Thessalonians was written literally within 20 years of Jesus' departure. At least the the, the earliest manuscripts were that close. And so when they're writing about, when he calls, and Jesus and our Lord Jesus, Do you see what Paul is saying? 
he is attributing to Jesus divinity, putting him on par with God. Not just that, in the first century, I don't know, it was interesting being around even in places of Egypt and seeing the influence of the Greco-Roman Empire. And in the empire, do you know who was called Lord? Caesar. They would say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord. But Christians refused they would say, Christos Kurios, Christ is Lord. And you know what happens in the Roman Empire when you declare allegiance to a rival king? Persecution, death. And so now you understand when Jesus says, and our Lord Jesus It's so rich. We skim over and we don't even understand what he's talking about half the time. Jesus then, he received from his followers worship as Lord. To his disciples, he said, you call me Savior and Lord, and so I am. Mary at the tomb, when she was speaking to the angels after she found the body gone, she says, they have taken away my Lord. After seeing Jesus, whom she thought was the gardener, she then runs to tell the other disciples, I've seen the Lord. Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus, they are walking with this person they don't realize is Jesus, and he sits down with them, comes into their house, teaches them, breaks bread, and all of a sudden their eyes were opened. And they went and told the disciple, the Lord has risen indeed. Some of the disciples tell Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And he doubted. But when he saw the risen Christ for himself, he declared, my Lord and my God. Some of the disciples were fishing after, and Jesus tells them to cast on the other side, and John says to Peter, it's the Lord. When Jesus and Peter went for a walk, and he has that famous conversation about, you know, do you love me, Peter? He says, feed my sheep. You know that whole conversation. Jesus, or Peter, confesses that Jesus is Lord the whole time. When the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the believers in Acts chapter 2, Peter, Peter preaches and not only applying the Old Testament using Lord to Jesus, but also declaring emphatically that God has made the resurrected Jesus both Lord and Christ whom they crucified. And in response to being asked by the, being convicted, what shall we do, people? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. One of the most famous in all of the New Testament, Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, therefore, you know, after he humbled himself to the point of death, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The Apostle Peter wrote, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, why am I being so painstaking about this? I can see it in your eyes. Okay, yep, yeah, we got this. Because you have heard... And you will hear again and again 
and again that this whole idea about Jesus being God was created by his followers after Constantinople as a way of controlling people. Friends, it is patently false. It's bad history, and it's complete ignorance about people who, by people who disbelieve and are trying to discredit Jesus and Christianity to the world. The fact remains that the deity of Jesus, as he is Lord, was well established by, by the very first time before even Jesus left. After the Holy Spirit came, it just continued to. It didn't come into existence. Why did they make the creeds? Yes, hundreds of years later. Why did they make them? Because the truth that they've always believed was being twisted and false teachers were coming in. So therefore, they developed the creeds to be able to confront the false teaching that was coming against the church and to use as teaching tools so that people understood and they could teach their children that Jesus Christ, in fact, was Lord. Get it? Good. This didn't come into play because it was a way to manipulate they did formalize creeds and their doctrine, for sure, but the reason why was not because it didn't exist, not because they didn't worship him as such, but because of errors, false teaching. And so, therefore, the church met, and under the early fathers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they solidified what was true since the time of Jesus. Do you understand? This is why I'm belaboring the point, because... Almost every year, whether it's at Christmas or whether it's, you know, at Easter, there will be articles in magazines about Jesus, and they'll go on and on about how he wasn't, and people made all this up hundreds of years later. And now you know. Okay. He says, now, may our... Okay, okay, you got that? I, I was belaboring it for a reason. I think the baby was born... We all receive that baby. Jesus is Lord. Amen? He's, he's Lord. Now, may both Father, God our Father himself and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Now, the rest of this is going to go really fast, so just relax. I know you're kind of doing the math. Okay, he's not even done one verse. And the game's starting at one. I got to direct our way to you. Literally, it means clear the way. Now, what's fascinating here, another thing that's very, we kind of miss it in English, but in the Greek, it's very, very in your face. He's talking two different persons. If it was two separate people doing different activities, what would happen? The, the verb he would use for direct or clear the way would be plural. It's singular. Both God our Father and our Lord Jesus, with the singular verb, they are, they are one doing the work. And Paul ties these realities of Father and Lord together in praying for his opportunity to see the Thessalonians again. So, this prayer leads us to distinguish between the people and the Godhead. And it lifts Jesus again to his proper place. But he's praying. This is the first request. We're going to get here in a second. I'll just, sorry, I'll finish. Uh, and may the Lord, verse 12 make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. It's fascinating that the Lord 
Jesus makes our love for one another and for others increase. It's fascinating. If we had time, I would make you turn around and say, how does God do that? And I'd like you to think about that. Maybe a great question for your life groups. How does God increase our love for one another and for others? On one level, we know it to be true that through his Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5, that says that God has poured his love or shed abroad his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The number one manifestation of the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit, some called fruit in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of the Spirit's work and presence in your life is love. And so we respond to what the Spirit does in us by receiving his Spirit and his love by faith and then acting in faith using that love that he fills us with to make it operative in our lives to other people. He increases our love. He increases love within us and makes it abound through the Holy Spirit as we walk in faith, being filled ongoingly with his Spirit and his love. And then we act in faith to love. We sang songs about this this morning. Isn't those difficult words about loving your enemies, you know, and all of that we sang? Impossible without the Spirit of God working in us. Now, I remember also on a human level, when Caleb was born, I remember sharing this with you one time, our son Caleb was born, and uh, oh, we had this great love for him. And then Amanda came along, and I'm like, Oh, how do I half this? You know, and then Dylan, now how do I, three. And I, I learned a little bit how God increases your love. You don't half it. It's not a zero-end game. God multiplies love for your children. And the same thing through his spirit for the body of Christ. He multiplies love Last verse, verse 13. Now, why does he do this? So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, I'm going to deal with the first half of this in the prayer request. But there is one final textual consideration before we close this section of it, and that's this. He talks about, in the end of verse 13, the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I think the NIV gets that one right, where he says, all his holy ones. So my question is this. Is he talking about people who trust in Christ? Perhaps those who are dead and will be raised at the end? Or is he talking about angels? Are these Christians who have passed away? Well, in chapter 4, verse 16, he talks about the saints will accompany Christ at his second coming. These holy ones or saints are a common way of uh, describing Christians in the New Testament. We know the dead in Christ will rise. We're going to read about this later on in this very book. But then, in 2 Thessalonians 1.10, speaking about angels... Zechariah 14, the Lord will come in his, with his Holy One with them. In all these Older Testament texts, it's very specifically speaking about celestial beings. Read about them in 
Deuteronomy 33, Job 5, Psalm 89, Daniel 4. And there's a number of them that talk about, even in the Newer Testament, about angels coming with Jesus when he returns at the second coming. So I love what Leon Morris talks about. He's a scholar. He says, perhaps it's both. For there is room in the scripture that speaks of both the appearing with Christ, angels, and his believing people in the final time when he comes to bring justice, purify the cosmos, grant new resurrected bodies, and establish the final full kingdom of God in the new heaven, the new earth. So he says, Paul may have intentionally used holy ones, knowing that it would include both saints and angels, not, not limiting them to one group or the other. Okay? We good with that? It's both. Now, here's the two requests. We'll go quicker. Here's what does Paul request. Well, the first thing he requests is, is for his team. And not, he's not praying for the Thessalonians. He's actually praying for him. And who's his team? He, Timothy, Silas, Silvanus. He's talking about them to clear the way. He's asking that God would clear the way for them to come and connect again with this church. He asked to come and see them in person. His previous attempt, as Amy talked about last week, was thwarted or blocked by Satan. Here, he trusts the power of the risen Christ will clear the way, clear Satan and every demon from hindering his work and actually connecting with him. So while Satan is actually powerful and can interfere with the work, he's not incontestable. Jesus has authority and power over him. Friends, Satan is not Jesus' equal and opposite. Please understand that. Jesus reigns supreme over every rule and principality, every evil, wicked, and spirit, including Satan himself. So, Jesus can clear the way. And Paul's affection for this church is obvious, and he expresses this deep desire to see them again. Can I ask you the question this morning? As you think about the times when you want to come to church or you want to gather with Christian friends or your small group or something like that, and it seems to not work out, have you ever considered that maybe on occasion, I'm not saying every time, please understand, but maybe on occasion, would Satan actually be interfering with your desire to connect with one another? Or to gather with your church? He's a schemer. And he will use many different methods to thwart attempts to connect with one another and from those who are trying to bless. And it's Paul's deepest wish that they would connect. The second request is for the church, and that was that God would multiply their love for others. That the Lord would multiply their love. That would be, cause his love to increase and abound for one another. That's for Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, and for all, everyone. First for believers. So those are his two requests. Simple, he wants to connect, and he prays that their love would increase and abound Now, there's something really important that we need to understand here. It's a deep theological truth and practical insight into our lives. Verse 13 
does not begin a new verse, but rather is a continuation from verse 12. It says this, May the Lord increase and abound your love for one another and for all, so that in order to what? So that he may establish your hearts in blameless in holiness. You see the connection between love and holiness? We want to dissect those things. I'm going to be piety holy between me and God. The scripture never allows that. Love and holiness are essentially connected. Please understand this. Paul says in Romans 13 that love is the fulfillment of the law. As we come more and more in love and live love and become more loving, we become more holy. This dynamic makes sense experientially as we face our sin. For example, if you grow in love for one another in this room or for your neighbor, are you less likely or more likely to covet their possessions? If you grow more and more in love, if you have a spouse, the less attractive the possibility of adultery. The more you love your fellow man, it's harder to harbor malice towards them. Do you see? If we loved perfectly one another and everyone else, Sin would dissipate. And this is precisely what Jesus taught when he was asked about what the greatest commandment is. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law, the entire law hinges on these two things. And sometimes people in churches think that love is all this sentimentality we don't need to talk about. Just give us truth and doctrine. Not this fluffy stuff. And it shows a fundamental misunderstanding of the connection between true love and holiness. Write this down. Love is essential to and inseparable from holiness. Now, here's your application very quickly. Here's some things we could do. First of all, I'd say pray to clear the way for us to connect. You see things that you want to do, you want to connect with people. I mean, I even implied this as we thought about going to, to Egypt this week. I was praying. I said, Lord, please, could we somehow con- connect with all of our friends who used to be here? I know they got busy schedules, and I don't know what ours is, but please, could you make a way? We began to pray that the Lord would just clear every obstacle, and sure enough gave us a wonderful time together with our friends. Pray about that. When you think about your church come gathering together for worship instruction, your small groups, or to get together with a brother or sister and friends in Christ, pray for the Lord to clear the way so that you can connect. You just want to make sure there's no spiritual obstacles in the way. Secondly, pray our love would increase and abound. Pray for this. Do you often pray? I know 
I know we pray like crazy when there's needs. There's prayer this week. Someone in our church family, while I was away, I lost a parent. It's hard. For you, we love you. We're praying over there. But we, do we pray that our love as a church family would increase and abound? Love isn't static, it's dynamic. It's got to be cultivated, intentionally built up, regular, infused with the Spirit to love one another as Jesus loves us, loving neighbor as we would love ourselves. And we just trust that that would happen, that we pray for this. And that we pray that we understand the love, holiness, unity. Please understand. You've got to pray that we get this right. It's in the relational arena where holiness is displayed and worked out. As my first mentor said, you've heard it so many times, you probably quote it with me. Right relationship with God is both developed and maintained through right relationship with one another. It's not either love or holiness. It's profoundly both and. Lastly, we pray that we would live with anticipation of Christ's return. We're part of God's grand story. And his story for humanity not only had a beginning, it's got an ending. Well, at least an ending to life as we know it, which is why N.T. Wright called it life after life after death. In the meantime, we are to live and love and serve God, one another, and our world, alert to the imminent coming of the Lord Jesus. Friends, he is coming back. That's part of the story. We just don't take a chunk of the story. We see God's whole intention, and we live our lives that way. Can you, can you see how you can, this is what we can do? We can pray these ways as a church. Pray that God clears the way connect. Pray that our love would increase and then abound in his expression. Pray that we understand the love-holiness connection and unity, and that we live with anticipation of Christ's return. Oh, may God bless us, and may we pray, connect, and increase in love for one another. Amen? Let's pray.